Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 90, which along with Psalm 87 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, June the 19th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along. We're still working through 1 Samuel, Acts, and Luke today. So we're the theme of the day is one that it never pleases me to talk about, and, and yet it, it, it gets avoided so much in most churches nowadays. And it's probably a reaction against the, there was a season of time when every message was turn or burn, repent or die. Um, and so probably... We've reacted against that idea uh, that was constantly, it feels like at least, constantly kind of preached in the 70s and, and, and so forth. And so we'll see, though, that judgment is real. I mean, that's just period, end of sentence. There's no question about that. Jesus talks about it. Everybody does. I mean, there's nothing in Scripture that would lead you to believe that, that there's something called universal salvation where there's no judgment and God just watches us from a distance. No, he's actively involved, and that's the point of the Incarnation, for instance, is to show how much God loves us in order that we might then be set free of, of all the other stuff so that we could follow him and do his will and we could become the people that he intended us to be when he created us. And so these, both these um, psalms for today, Psalm 87 and 90, are both about judgment. Uh, whether they're judgment on the nation of Israel or whether they're judgment on um, those who are not there. And so it's um, incumbent on us, I think, to to be aware of that. There's there's justice and mercy that coexist side by side in the person of God, right? So so you get both those things. Jesus is an expression. That's that's modalism to say it that way, but, but... Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy, is probably the best way to say it. His uh, life, beginning at the Incarnation, is a great mercy to mankind, because he brings something new into the world. He brings the knowledge of God, the presence of God, into the world in a tangible, visible way. And then the crucifixion, the willing sacrifice by Jesus of his life, is a a symbol, the greatest symbol of God's mercy. So then the resurrection, because it presages the resurrection of, of, of humankind, of those who are believers, that's a great mercy because we need, now need no longer live in fear of death being the final answer. We don't have to question whether there's a resurrection. We know there is. And then ultimately his ascension to the right hand of the Father is mercy because he pleads for us before the throne. Well, if there's no judgment, there's no reason for him to plead before the throne. There's no reason for him to give his life on the cross. There's very little reason for him to come to the earth except to make his Father truly known. And then the final piece of God's mercy, I mean, not the final piece, but the, but, but we're following the thread of the incarnation all the way through Pentecost when, when the Spirit comes is a great mercy of God because it gives us assurance of that salvation, but it also provides us with everything we need to fulfill the mission of God, which is to go and tell, 
And so, we, but judgment is always there. There's, there's a way around judgment, though. That's the, the beauty of the Christian message is, is that, yes, there is judgment because God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. And so justice is what we stand before the throne with unless we stand in the blood of Christ. And then we stand there as one beloved by God, one for whom Christ has died. And so that's the message of the gospel is, yes, there is judgment, but the good news is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not die but have everlasting life. It's as simple as that. He didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but through his son, the world might be saved. So today we're going to look at some instances of judgment. And so the first one is when, when uh, remember God had said that he was going to, the first thing that would happen would be Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, would die. And then that would secure God's word against the house of Eli forever. That if he saw that, then he would know that God's judgment was against the house of Eli. And so it's interesting that this first Samuel 4 verse begins with, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's a very interesting form of words. But Samuel has been lifted up. And so Samuel has now, is now becoming the one who the people recognize as truly the leader even though Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas are still alive. And so Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they lost the battle. They couldn't figure out why they had lost the battle, and it's God's judgment is against them. And so they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh, where Eli and his sons and Samuel were, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, it's not some talisman and good luck charm. And so they've already treated it in a way that it's not intended to be treated. It's not to be carried among them when they go into battle. Um, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. You could feel the enthusiasm of the people as they shouted. It shook the ground. When the Philistines heard it, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. So their interpretation was exactly what the Israelites believed. That, well, the ark of the covenant is here, therefore God is bound to be in our midst as well. Yeah, well... And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods, plural. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And they did. And they won. So the first time there were 4,000 people killed. The second time they lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died in accordance with the word of the Lord. I added that last part. But that's exactly the case. And so the judgment of God falls on Israel. 34,000 men died in these battles, along with Hophni and Phinehas. And the judgment has come on the land and come on the people because of these men who were its spiritual leaders. 
They wouldn't have just been the spiritual leaders, however. They would have been also sort of the leaders of Israel because Israel doesn't have a king, so the priesthood serves in some ways as the leadership of the people. And so they have taken the ark as though it were just some sort of good luck charm and taken it into battle. And what happened? They lost it. They lost the ark. I mean, what, what do you do if you lose the ark of the covenant? And now it's among somebody else. Now we're going to find out it doesn't turn out all that great for the Philistines to have it. But the other reality is, is that, that my goodness, how could you possibly have treated it as a good luck charm and taken it into the battle? No, it belongs in the temple. It belongs in the house of God. So now Jesus is going to speak about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to speak about it in, in two different ways, in some ways in this gospel lesson. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city, Judea is the surrounding area, let those inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it at all. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written Vengeance is God's vengeance that it's speaking about here. And like I said, the, the temple's going to be destroyed in AD 70. And so it, they're going to lose all of that. But then the, the rest of this sounds far more like the final days, right? Alas for women who are pregnant and those with nursing infants in those days, for there'll be great distress on the earth and wrath against his, this people, this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Israel, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles in the times, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, look at Jerusalem today and look at the Temple Mount and what sits on the Temple Mount today. It's a mosque, right? It's, so the Dome of the Rock is there. It's a Muslim place, and that's the Gentiles that Jesus is speaking about here. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming in the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He's speaking to the disciples and speaking to all these others as well who have heard this and who are believing. The redemption is drawing near when you see him coming in the clouds. And that's exactly what the two men told the disciples as they stood there gazing into the clouds after Jesus had been taken up into heaven was is that he will come in the same way. It's not going to be difficult to figure out Jesus has come because he's going to come in the clouds. So they, he's telling them here, and if you look at all the signs and the suns and the moon and the stars, and the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves and all those things. Those are things we see in the apocalypse and the revelation given to John. These are all the signs that John sees that happen on the earth. A third of the stars swept from the skies, the sun darkened, the moon darkened, all those signs. And so Jesus is telling them about the end times here. But he's not telling them to focus on the end times. He's just telling them that there will be judgment. There will be the days of vengeance when God's judgment is poured out on the earth but even the purpose of that is to grab the attention of humankind in order that we might see and believe and fall to our feet fall to our knees sorry in fear of the lord there's a proper fear of the lord the one that brings you to repentance the one that brings you to believe in the son the one that 
causes you to ask for mercy from the one who's doing all these things. And in, in our day, we can see probably what would happen would be there'd be scientific explanations for all of these things. And what we can see, if we can see anything at all very clearly right now, is, is that, that if, if, it's, if the, that message is communicated with the, with the right kind of authority, people will believe it. I don't care how dramatic the, the signs are. They'll be explained away. And a great mass of people will believe it, whatever that explanation is. We have to be clear that, yes, God's judgment is real, but his mercy is greater. He wants all to come to saving faith. It's just that simple, that there's a way out. There's always been a way out since Jesus. And there's no excuse that anybody has for missing that. So we come to the book of Acts now, and so we're talking about just after, right, after, just after the day of Pentecost, this new church thing is being formed, and they're, they're not sure who they are. They're just Jews who believe that Jesus was Messiah, right? That's, that's all it is at this point in time. Perhaps some of the proselytes who were there as well who had not taken that final step, step of circumcision to become Jews. But that, this, this thing is very much a Jewish movement, at this point, it's just those who have come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they still gather, and they come to the temple, they go to the synagogues, they do all the things they normally did. They just believe that they have seen the coming of Messiah. And so they're waiting for him to return. In accordance with the words that we just heard him speak, they're waiting for him to return in a hurry. They think this is going to be a very, very short wait for the return of the Messiah. And so what we're told is that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was among them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." If you think this is all going to end soon, then what difference does it make? You, you get the right attitude about your possessions when you think, well, it ain't going to matter very long anyway. Let's just make sure everybody's well-fed and taken care of in the, in the short term because that's all there is is the short term. And then a man named Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas by the disciples, which means son of encouragement, he's a Levite. But he's a native of Cyprus. So he is, he is not in the land, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we're told that in order to set up the next story, and that's the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And what happens here is is that they've seen, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the way that Barnabas becomes, you know, well-known for doing this, selling his land and giving it away. And so, you know, they want some of that too. They, they, they want some of the acclaim and the, uh, the notoriety of having done the same thing. So they sold a piece of property, and together they decided to hold back some of the proceeds and brought only a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And there's nothing wrong with giving a portion of it, but you have to be honest about it. The, the new church faces a crisis at some level right here. What's okay and what's not okay? And, and people who have been born again... Don't do this kind of thing, is the message. And yet, people who claim to be born again do it all the time. I mean, I worked for an accounting firm who the, the managing partner was um, 
he went to the same church I did. And I saw him do worse than this and claim to be a Christian. And, and that this is the thing that baffles me. We should have a totally different ethic and attitude than, than people who are not Christians. And so Ananias and his wife just said, we're going to hold back a portion of this. But when they come forward with it, they don't say that. They, they pretend to be, he at least, pretends to be doing the same thing Bar, Bar, Barnabas did. Peter sees through it, though. God gave him knowledge on this. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back yourself a portion of the proceeds in the land? When it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. This is the, the, the thing that God was angry at Eli and his sons for. Is that they thought it was everything was, was on the horizontal level. And they completely left God out of the equation at all. They could do anything they wanted to, and they acted as if there were no God. No judgment. That God didn't even see them. Then they found out differently. But Ananias hears Peter speak these words, and he fell down and died. And great fear came upon everybody who heard it. Then the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Well, we're done with that. Except (laughs) three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She didn't know what had happened. She didn't know he had died, didn't know any of these things. And so Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, whatever that price would be. Exactly that. Peter said, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They're coming back, and they're going to carry you out too. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last as well. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You know, it's like I've said before about this leprosy thing. That leprosy in the Old Testament, the, the belief of Jews is, is you can only get that in the land. It only exists in that one place. And what it has to do is you can't speak against the leaders. You can't gossip about things. And they get that from Miriam being the first one to have this leprosy. And so, you know, it, it, if, if you thought God was going to strike you dead every time you lied, you might kind of approach things differently. But in the beginning of this new movement, it, it, they need to see power. And they need to see and, and celebrate the mercy of God that they've received. And instead, don't they? going back to your old ways of lying and deceitfulness. And there was a price to be paid for that. We may not get caught up in our sins right away. But we never get away with them. That's the honest truth. You may not fall into judgment because you're in Christ. But the Holy Spirit is there trying to convict you and trying to bring you to repentance and change. To be more like Him. We've got to be aware that that mercy triumphs judgment, but judgment's still real. There is still judgment. God will judge the world, and he'll judge those who are in it, who are not in his son. He judges the church first, and that's what happens here, is the judgment began at the household of God. It began with Eli and his sons, and then it spreads out to the congregation because we all get corrupted by bad teaching and bad leadership. But judgment is indeed real, and we just have to be prepared and make sure we stand in Christ and that we stand in his word.